All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class, As American Christianity Failed, by Brian Wolfmuller, taking a look at this text. And uh, today we're going to, we started last week in with absolution. Today we're going to go through uh, absolution. We'll talk about the conscience and the importance of the conscience, have some opportunity for dialogue in regard to that. A somewhat complex topic, somewhat straightforward enough. And then we move on into chapter 6, God willing, and we're going to kind of be introduced to um, a spirituality that's external to us, which runs so against the grain of American Christianity. And then we're going to have opportunity to look at the sacraments via that framework. Before we begin, uh, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so let's pick back up on page 110. And we're looking at absolution, and we're looking at um, what often goes along with it is called the Office of the Keys. As is so often in the case of scripture and theology, we come up with these names and titles, sometimes these distinctions and categories that aren't spelled out in chapter and verse of scripture, but rather help us to understand what various chapters and verses of scripture are saying and how it is that we can comprehend these things all together. The same is true with the office of the keys. The language of the keys, as we saw last week, comes from Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 16, Christ gives to Peter the keys, and then in Matthew chapter 18, he gives to the rest of the disciples also these keys. And because of the language Christ used about the nature of the keys, binding and loosing, um, the, a connection is seen between these passages and John chapter 20, where the resurrected Jesus appears in the midst of the locked room, says peace to his disciples, absolving them for their uh, previous abandonment, showing his hands and, and his side, his wounds, by which that peace comes, and then breathing on them and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So tying these three scriptures together, Matthew 16, 18, and John 20, we come to arrive at the binding and the loosing, the, the loosing of a sinner from his sins or the binding if he's repentant, right? If, if you desire forgiveness, that's exactly what Christ has for you. And so your sins are loosed. Um, or uh, if you are impenitent, you don't want forgiveness, you want approval, blessing. Um, then the binding key, you are bound in those sins until you do repent. I think I mentioned in passing last week an example of the binding key being used in 1 Corinthians 5, the man engaged in a rather egregious form of sexual immorality, even such that the pagans would have recognized it as offensive. Um, the Corinthians seem to be patting themselves on the back. Look how gracious and gospel-centered we are. We allow this, even this man uh, in our midst. And Paul rebukes them and says, no, you're, you're dealing with an impenitent sinner, an egregiously uh, it's egregious sin, it's public sin, it's impenitent sin. 
he should be cast out from the communion until he learns to repent. And then, as I mentioned, by 2 Corinthians, you seem to see that this man has repented. And then the Corinthians, are they got the message, okay, what should we do now? And Paul says, by all means, bring him back into the fellowship. So we see an example of the binding key, and I think that that has um, I think that that has some bearing too. I didn't mention it because last week uh, one of the questions asked was, well, in in what way or in how far do we as individual Christians exercise these keys? And very often the champions of saying, well, I'm an individual Christian, I possess these keys, are more than happy to say, I forgive you your sins, but ask those same people how often they've bound someone in their sins. And I think that that illustrates, helps to illustrate that like, whoa, is that my place individually to bind someone in their sins? All of Matthew 16, 18 and John 20. I don't know about that. That seems more to me to be an act of the church. Bingo. And thus also the absolution formally um, goes from the church. The binding of sins Formally, what we would call church discipline goes from the church. And, of course, this is executed with the church and the ministry and through the ministry, through the pastor. But, again, the pastor is the one called by the church, you see. And so it's all one. All right, well, that's where this theology comes from. Those of you who have, uh, if you're looking for just a very simple, straightforward, and official um, kind of teaching of Lutheranism on these things, and you'll see it come right from the scriptures, of course, the small catechism, um, has this section uh, for you in the fifth chief part. All right, let's pick up then um, kind of where we left off, or maybe a little overlap, but page 110. And uh, let's, let's just, for the sake of it, go to the second full paragraph on 110. Here Wolfmuller writes, Jesus would have the word of this peace spread throughout the entire world. Therefore, he sends out the disciples and establishes the church in every corner of the world. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he sends them to make disciples by baptizing and teaching. In Mark 16, he sends them to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke, Jesus says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The peace of the cross and the empty tomb spreads throughout the world by preaching and baptism. John records Jesus' specific instructions for expanding this peace to the world. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jesus is giving his church the authority to forgive and retain sins. And we call this authority the office of the keys. Okay. And then here quoted Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Uh, Matthew 16 first. Jesus answered Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then later in chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, plural, whatever you, plural, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
All right, so let's get a little commentary here from Wolf Mueller, and we'll pull back to make sure everything's clear. Top of 111, the keys here given are the opening and closing of heaven. The keys are the preaching of law and gospel. There is a fantastic definition of the office of the keys in the small catechism. The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. This authority is most often exercised in the absolution, that is, the declaration of the promise of the forgiveness of sins. Speaking the absolution is a practice that is foreign and troubling to American Christianity, but it is comforting and joy, but it is a comforting and joyful gift given by Jesus to the church. The forgiveness given in absolution is not man's forgiveness, but God's. What really does it matter if I forgive you? It is nice to have one another's forgiveness, but we will all need the forgiveness of God. Jesus wants to make sure we know we have it. Jesus breathed on his disciples and gave them the Holy Spirit and the charge to forgive sins. Okay, and then he goes on with an example to explain it. Um, let's pause there and uh, see if you have any thoughts on confession absolution or the office of the keys. Um, Anything uh, stand out to you as, as troubling or difficult, or are we uh, are we okay with this? It's always good as Christians to be okay with Christ's teaching. All right, is this offensive to uh, to people these days? Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Um, it's offensive in a twofold way. One, it's offensive to our flesh that we would have to acknowledge our sin. And then two, it's offensive that God would use such lowly means to deliver his grace to us. And I think that same offense carries, you say, well, who is this, this pastor think he is, this fellow sinner who's announcing this? And the same argument is made, how on earth is God going to work through this water in the baptismal font or in American Christianity, the hot tub or whatever the case may be? Um, or how is God going to work through this little bread and wine? How can that possibly be? And so there's a despising of the lowliness of the things that God chooses. A human being, um, water, bread, and wine. Um, but hidden inside, available to faith, and proclaimed by his word so that it's graspable by faith, God hides the glories of his grace, the riches of his forgiveness, under these despisable things. So that, you know, and there's a test involved here. You can think of Adam and Eve, remember? Especially Eve. Um, don't eat it, and the day you eat of it, you shall die. She looks and says, but it looks good for food. Kind of a reverse thing happens. Jesus says, um, these, through these things I will give you life. And we look at them and say, that's nothing. That's worthless. So kind of a little inversion there. Okay, please. Well, it kind of seems to me that the culture is so replete with so many sins today, and I'm not excluding this, but I mean that many people seem to stay away from the church because of the conviction. And when you said um, that it's uh, it's kind of uncomfortable mm -hmm. for people to think that someone can blind your sins or forgive mm -hmm. your sins, I think that they want to be accepted. You know, it's like... Um, 
when you said Sunday it's um, transgenderism is just a mutilated male or mutilated woman. This isn't popular because they they want they yearn for acceptance in their sin. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so if you come to church, I mean, you know, I've yeah. been there where you don't want to go to church because you know that you've been sinful. Right. And why is that? That's where your sins could be forgiven. Mm-hmm. But you want to be accepted mm-hmm. in your own heart too. Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, we we accept one another, um, but we don't we don't um, we are all allied together against the the sins that each of us have, the particular manifestations of those sins, and we work together as a body of Christ to put those off of us and away from us as best we can, realizing that that's going to be an imperfect task and a task that fluctuates greatly. Um, thus, we, the, the heart and center of what we do is rejoice in the cleansing by the blood of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that is outside of us and in the transformative power of those things to, to work in our life in God's good way and God's good timing. Um, but yeah, this is, this is why, you know, while we draw a really hard line in the sand between right and wrong and good and evil and truth and lies, and we, we can't ever equivocate or, or, or waffle on those things without committing sin ourselves, we can nonetheless be very compassionate and gentle toward people. And, you know, that's, I think that that's the, many people aren't willing to receive Christianity. Many people aren't willing to confess their sins before God and be forgiven by God. That's been the way it is since the fall into sin and since God's first gospel proclamation. We shouldn't fret too much about that, but we should have our, our hearts and minds open and our eyes open to people who maybe up until this point in their lives would not hear it, but now they will, and to seek ways to dialogue so that people understand that this isn't mean-spirited, this isn't high-handed, this isn't judgmental per se, I see that you're wounded in ways that I'm wounded or wounded in, you know, we're wounded in the same way, but your infection is manifested differently than my infection. Let me show you where I found healing, where we find healing, where God grants us healing. And we can gather together as sinners. Um, you know, that's the goal. Uh, and I think increasingly the church is going to have this twofold task. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the importance of conscience in this conversation and um, really the importance of the repeated forgiveness of sins that God gives to us through word and sacraments and why we need that and why we need it in the various forms God gives it to us. Um, it's not as though God changes, it's that we change. And so we need that continually. But we can touch base on that in a moment. Thank you for, for those comments, please. It's reassuring to have the Office of the Keys. Um, I had a situation in the church before we came here. It wasn't a Lutheran church, but I was in a bell choir. Mm-hmm. And the leader of the bell choir um, invited her boyfriend to come and live with her. And, you know, that was a little disconcerting at that point, but it became very important when she was being nominated for one of the higher roles in the church. Mm-hmm. So I struggled with that, and what should I do? I'm in the bell choir. and So I finally went to the elder one of the elders. And it was really hard. I mean, because if I had understood more about the Office of the Keys and understand this is exactly what we're supposed to do, Mm -hmm. 
But I turned it over to him, and the boyfriend was gone, and she stayed in her position. And what happened behind the scenes, I don't know. But it was certainly the right thing to do, as hard as it was. Yeah, it's never easy. Um, it's the right thing to do because you love that person, and you don't want to see them go down a path that's going to lead them away from Christ. Um, it's important because of the corporate nature of the church, and you don't want people to be put off or misled by something the membership are doing. And it's important simply because God is worthy of obedience. And um, so so it's important in all these different ways. Um, and while we want to be, again, just in terms of our mindset, a sin is a sin, and we're not ever going to change that. I think one of the things that we're going to have to shift and realize in the next decade or two um, is that this is you know, the wisdom of the world is you simply live with each other before you're married. Now, interestingly, statistics have borne out that you make yourself much more likely to get a divorce if you do cohabitate before marriage. But the worldly wisdom, I was listening, sometimes I just let the algorithm do its thing on YouTube, and it just, you know, it feeds me what it thinks I want to hear next. And it was uh, it was a guy who is kind of interested, I don't think he's a Christian guy, he's kind of interested in recovering traditional masculinity. And um, he and his wife, his second wife, were talking about the, the problems they had in their first marriages, what led to the, to the divorce, and what makes for a happy marriage. And one of the things he said was foundational, was living together before they were married. How could you not, you know, you would never just buy a car on sight. Um, <laughs> So you would never just marry a woman without living with her and finding out if you can put up with her idiosyncrasies or whatever. Um, and she agreed heartily. Of course, statistics don't bear that view out. Christianity doesn't bear that view out. God's will doesn't bear that view out. But um, increasingly, this is just normative, and it's seen as nuts to do anything but this. Okay, well, if you I mean, put yourself in the shoes of a person who's grown up just assuming that this is normal, it's not illegal, so it's good, it's moral, it's wise. And all of a sudden the church is saying, hey, you shouldn't do that. We need to find a way to make the argument, to make the case, and to, rev and to teach, right? If we, if we just condemn, then we've done nothing really but shame that person, and that person's likely to, to kind of go on the offensive. Um, we need to we need to posture ourselves such that we're able to teach people and say, well, do the facts bear that out? Is that what, in fact, the the research, the science shows? Um, is that, in fact, what God's will and desire is for us? What could go wrong if everyone in culture did what you're doing now? What would society look like? What would what havoc would that create when people do finally tie the knot? You see, um, we, we need to take the time as Christians to make the case as opposed to just pronouncing. I hope that makes sense. Now, that's quite a tangent from what you're saying, Janet. Um, well, yeah, well and good. And there is a different standard between Christians and non-Christians. Paul even mentions this. What have we to do with judging those outside the church? Right. So the judgment is, hey, you're a Christian, and this is unbecoming of you as a Christian. Let's get you restored in a spirit of gentleness. Right. That's the task. Um, not straight up condemnation, just restored in a spirit of gentleness. And where that's resisted and it progresses, 
then yes, finally we come, you know, Matthew 18 is frequently used here um, as a pattern. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him privately so that you may win him. Um, if he won't listen to you, go and t take, you know, another or two or three others with you. If he won't listen even to them, tell it to the church. If he won't listen to the church, which is then that's really the office of the keys. Um, if he won't listen to the office of the keys, the binding of the church, um, then you must treat him as a as a sinner and a tax collector. That is, as one who needs to be converted, who is no longer a brother of, in, in Christ, and thus not able to commune. Um, but we seek to win and convince uh, back into the faith, back into repentance. Please. Yeah, you talked about um, American Christianity you know, the standard American Christian forgiving somebody's sins and how they wouldn't want, you know, to retain somebody's sins. You know, sure. They're good yeah. at that. Um, it's my impression, you know, maybe you know more than I do, that even the church doesn't often retain somebody's sins. Mm -hmm. It, I mean, we remonstrate or whatever, you know, counsel, um, but actually excommunicating somebody just doesn't really happen. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times they get the picture and fade away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but uh, um, my personal thought was that, yeah, I don't forgive somebody's sins unless they were like sins against me. You know, if somebody sins right. directly against me, I could forgive those. Mm -hmm. But you know, their general sins, not. And we kind of take an emergency kind of situation for you to jump into the place of the office of the Holy Ministry and pronounce God's forgiveness, you know, right. for these sins that aren't against you. Um, I mean, and that's kind of a different category, too. It's just a different form than sharing the gospel with someone. I mean, any Christian can say, well, your sins, you know, were all put by God on Christ Jesus and your sins are forgiven. Nothing wrong with that. But the kind of first-person authoritative in the stead and by the command of Christ, that's a different form, even if the substance isn't different. And I find that there's kind of some weird little sects within Lutheranism who are interested in diminishing the role of the pastoral office, and they want to take this formal, this kind of form, the formal form, <laughs> um, unto themselves. And my, my um, you know, retort to that is, are you going to take the binding key too? Are you going to bind people in the name of Christ and the church and their sins when you find they're impenitent? Of course, there the answer is usually stammering. Um, yeah, because nobody wants to do the dirty work. <laughs> All right. One of the issues, you know, obviously with confession is even I'm not aware of all the sins that I commit um, and recounting them would be take a long time and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't get them all. Yeah. Yeah. That's where Luther's advice is so good in the small catechism where he says, before God, we confess all sins. We could plead guilty to all sins. We don't have to enumerate them all. <laughs> no sooner than we get, than we thought we got done just for that day, we'd be committing more. Right. So no, we don't, but before God, we plead guilty of all of them. If we go to the pastor for individual confession, absolution, which is a gift God gives us, then we confess only those we know and feel in our hearts, those which trouble us because the pastor doesn't have that kind of time either. <laughs> now, you bring up a good point, and I was, I was actually kind of deeply troubled about this um, er, as, a, as a younger pastor and early in my ministry. 
um, because the binding key is, is as essential as the loosing key. As essential as absolution is, so should be excommunication. Um, and in fact, Luther himself, you know, a really, maybe we'll talk about this more when we get to the sacraments, but kind of, kind of this idea of like, where can I find the church? And the simplest answer is where the word of God is preached in purity and where the sacraments are administered rightly. Because there's the word of Christ and the gifts of Christ, there's Christ. And if Christ is there, there's his church, right? So that's how you can find the church. Now, Luther will even kind of delineate this further and come up with seven different marks of the church. And one of those marks is church discipline, is a functioning immune system in the body. If that's not there, and the body of Christ has no immune system, then it's just a host to disease, right? It's not a healthy body. It's not the body of Christ. Okay, so I was very troubled about all of this. Um, our ma the malady we face in this culture is um, is of even deeper concern, although the church is somewhat exonerated in this. As you alluded to, before before we usually even get past the first or second step of Matthew, that person's already of Matthew eighteen, um, and the sort of process Christ would have us go through. That person has already moved on to another church. The the consumerism. Um, is there, but also just this deep sense of I'm not accountable to anyone. You're, if, if you say, if you dare to say something I don't like, I'm the customer. And the customer is always right. And so down you go to hear and see whatever pastor, you know. So what are we, now, what's happening here? We can be frustrated with that, and I am frustrated with that. But I think as I've ana analyzed it more deeply in myself, what's really frustrating is I want better for that person. And Christ wants better for that person. He wants us to pledge ourselves to a congregation in such a way that we are members of that body, in such a way that we don't sever ourselves off. Our faithfulness and our commitment is there unless there's demonstrable biblical reason to leave. You know, or, or life circumstance change such that you move across country or something like that, okay? Um, but otherwise, we commit ourselves there. Why? Because, well, what if the pastor or the board of elders or the council or somebody else actually does need correction, actually is wrong, and you just go, I don't have time for this. Then the whole body of Christ suffers. Or what if it's you who needs correction in this particular issue, but you go, I don't have time for this. What you've done is simultaneously cheated yourself and the body of Christ in this place of the only opportunity there is to grow, of the only opportunity there is to correct course. So I'm not, I'm not offended in the sense of like, ah, oh, and they're getting away with it. Nobody gets away with anything. <laughs> God is not like, oh no, they ran to another church. I guess, <laughs> I guess we'll just let this go. Oh, shoot. Uh, no, nobody gets away with anything. That's the least of my concerns. But my concern is that they've robbed themselves from an opportunity of growth. And in many cases, I feel like they've robbed possibly uh, me as a pastor and the rest of the congregation as an opportunity to grow. Um, you know, we don't always hit the right notes. We don't always say the right things. We don't always have the complete understanding. Enlighten us. Engage, you know, engage with us. That's How else are we going to grow and mature together? There's no other way. So to regain this sense of commitment to one another and commitment to Christ, I'm joining this group of people 
as the body of Christ and as, as a member, and I'm not going to sever myself from that. Um, I'm gonna, the, the only way I'm going to leave, spiritually speaking, is if I am severed off, and only that for good cause. That's really how even Luther and the Lutheran reformers were with the, with the church in the Reformation. They didn't say, harumph, let's start our own churches. Um, they were excommunicated. And even then, the entire appeal of the Lutheran confessions is, rethink this. You're excommunicating not only us, but the church fathers before us, saying the same thing we're saying, and the scriptures upon which we're all standing. Don't do this. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's maybe the bigger tragedy um, that we face. It's not that people just, um, you know, that the church is somehow remiss in doing church discipline. I don't think that's so much the story. Um, it, nearly, nearly to the extent it is just people leave. That's the local congregation. Now, we could talk differently if we want to talk about broader communions. <laughs> and should the Pope um, maybe think about excommunicating uh, people who are open proponents of abortion and yet want to commune? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of self-evident. Um, should, the, should the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod um, be willing to swiftly engage teachers and pastors who are in, engaged in obvious false doctrine, manifest false doctrine? Yeah. And there is a there is a reluctance to deal biblically and to deal swiftly and to deal in accordance with the keys when we look at sort of the the communion, the larger communion or denomination or whatever you want to call it. Okay, well we uh, we got a little bit away from the text, but hopefully it was somewhat enlightening. Any other comments or questions? We ready to jump back in? All right. So just one concluding thought here from Wolf Mueller. Um, Bottom of 112. And of course, here's, uh, here's our transition. This verse in the bottom left-hand corner, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, so there, to kind of cut through to get to the heart of the meaning of this verse, it is the blood of Christ that purifies our conscience. So that kind of introduces this idea of conscience um, that we're going to transition into. Now, the last paragraph on 112, Lutheran writes, as a, or Wolfmuller writes, as a Lutheran pastor, I now understand the question I once asked when I first visited a Lutheran church. Who is this pastor to forgive me my sins? No one is the answer. Whenever anyone asks me that question, I open my Bible to John 20 and rejoice that Jesus has given such a treasure as the absolution to us. All right. Now, in order to introduce the concept of conscience and its importance, Wolf Mueller is going to frame this in terms of the language of the courtroom, juridical language, and that's well and good um, because it does arrive that way in, in the scriptures. Um, and of course, there are other ways to conceive of conscience, but this is quite straightforward. So let's just pick up with his opening thought under that uh, subsection, the courtroom of the conscience and the comfort of truth. Wolfmuller writes, we've talked a lot in this book about the conscience. It's time to dig in and sort out what the conscience is, how it works, and how our teaching affects the conscience. Lutheran teaching is unique in that it 
focuses on the conscience, especially delivering the comfort of the gospel to terrified consciences. And my only asterisk there would be, it's really not unique if you're talking about the history of the church or if you're talking about the scriptures themselves, but it is unique relative to kind of contemporary American Christianity where there's not a lot of talk about the conscience. Just, yeah, it's largely absent. So I think that's what he's getting after. All right, Wolf Mueller asks, who dug that pit in your stomach? The sick feeling we get when we've done something bad is due to our having a conscience. This, by the way, is something that, um, you know, sort of materialistic evolutionary worldviews have a really hard time dealing with. Um, this concept of conscience. There's all manner of ways that people have tried to describe it, but ultimately they're quite unsatisfying, especially when you just think about the Darwinian principles that drive evolution along. Conscience would seem to be anti-evolutionary. The sick feeling we get when we've done something bad is due to our having a conscience. The conscience is our internal referee that makes judgments about the things going on around us. The conscience is a gift from God. Like reason and emotions, the conscience is given to every person in creation. It is part of our humanity. The conscience works like a little courtroom in our heart. You know, and I would, I think that this cuts deeper. Sometimes we're here, we're told that like sociopaths or psychopaths have no conscience. Strictly speaking, that's not true. Um, the conscience is conceived more deeply because sociopaths and, and psychopaths, um, do have a sense of right and wrong. That's why they sometimes act very violently. They don't think that they're acting in a wrong way. They think that they're acting a right way. Why wouldn't a psychopath or a sociopath just go to church and behave themselves and be decent? Because they don't find that to be good. Now, this idea that, I mean, this is a lie that we've been told that they, oh, they just lack a conscience. No, that's not true. A conscience is a sense of right or wrong. It's just that their sense of right and wrong is so skewed, so far out of bounds, that we can't recognize it. But it's nonetheless there. So I think Wolfmuller is just unequivocally right to say that everyone has a conscience. And I think he's getting that from Scripture. I think he's getting that from Romans 2, where Paul talks about everyone having a conscience and thus being without excuse, whether you have a set of Ten Commandments with you or not. You've got this thing God put in your heart that's accusing you or excusing you. And nowhere in Romans does Paul say, oh, well, except for psychopaths. <laughs> no, it's everyone. All right. So it is part of our humanity, kind of the middle of that paragraph where we left off. Wolf Miller continues, The conscience works like a little courtroom in our heart. Thoughts and actions are tested, and verdicts are pronounced. Our conscience makes judgments on our own thoughts, words, and deeds. Conscience especially makes judgments on the way other people treat us. Ooh, isn't that true? Our conscience is always stronger towards other people than it is towards ourselves. Our conscience judges the way people treat others, and it also suggests there is something wrong in the world. Again, I, I mean, from the psychopath all the way up, I don't think you'd find a single human being that says, everything is right in the world. I wouldn't change a single thing. It's perfect. How is it, how is it that we can hold this universal view of human beings and saying, the world's messed up? Where does that come from? Why would we have that? 
we're all just apes that grew up in the mist and evolved, why would we have this sense that everything has gone wrong? Why would we care in the first place? And then the nature of conscience and, and its specific peculiarity is that it's involuntary. I may see very quickly what I want and seize it, and then involuntarily my conscience is screaming in my ears and will not let me sleep until I've returned it or somehow attempted to make amends. So that's the nature of conscience. It's involuntary. So yeah, we, we all, as human beings, we share this view towards all things, ourselves, but even the world. All right, Wolf Miller continues. Comparing the conscience, this is kind of the one-sentence paragraph, comparing the conscience to a courtroom lets us consider how it should be ordered and how it might become disordered. Okay, so do note, this is an analogy in play, and it's a biblical analogy, I think, a biblical motif, if you prefer. But um, yeah, what we're going to say is all analogies break down at a certain point. So just keep that in your mind. Wolfmuller says, In a rightly ordered conscience, the Lord sits as judge. The Ten Commandments are the law. We are the accused. The devil is the accuser. Satan is a Hebrew title meaning accuser. This, no doubt, is a terrifying picture. We are guilty of sin and should be condemned. This is why we try so hard to manipulate what is happening in the courtroom of our conscience. We try to remove ourselves from the accusations of our conscience. We try to put our neighbors on trial instead of ourselves and make judgments on their lives and actions. Why? Because if they're a worse sinner than I am, or maybe I am in fact guilty of X, but they're guilty of X to the tenth degree, you know. God can't be con too concerned with me. He's got bigger fish to fry, this kind of thing. Um, this is all uh, the uh, what the Lutherans call the opinio legis, this thing within our heart that's constantly self-justifying can barely stand to just say, I'm sorry. Full stop. <laughs> How much easier it is to say, I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> I'm sorry you were hurt by that. <laughs> but just to say, I'm sorry, and just admit and acknowledge guilt is a challenging thing for us. It's contrary to our flesh. All right, so... Yeah, just picking up maybe ah right at the start of that last paragraph on 113, I think. We try to remove ourselves from the accusations of our conscience. We try to put our neighbors on trial instead of ourselves and make judgments on their lives and actions. We try to take the devil's place and act as the accuser, or we try to take God's place and act as judge. We invite our peers into our conscience to create our own new law and standards to take the place of the Ten Commandments. Okay, and, and here, this is the disordering of the conscience. Um, you can see that that is uh, noted in that one-sentence paragraph. This is maybe kind of, there's this thing called a conscience, and the conscience may be rightly ordered, or it may be disordered. 
And what does that mean? That means that your conscience itself malfunctions. So if you, what, what God has placed into you is, a, is an objective sense of what's right and wrong that's in agreement with his sense of what's right and wrong, thus it's objective. Okay, but you can slowly poison your conscience, disorder your conscience by rejecting what your conscience itself says, trampling over the top of it, and then informing it with uh, lies, with things that are not God's word. And thus your conscience begins to believe in that and begins to be ordered around that lie or set of lies. Um, this is where people can say, you know, they can be in the midst of just extreme biblical sins and just be like, this is good. You should celebrate this. Celebrate it with me. Don't be a bigot. Um, completely okay in their conscience and completely, o- and, and, and offended in their conscience that anyone would be offended by their wickedness. This is a conscience that's disordered. It's, uh, so poisoned that it's taken on and, and it's been, um, it's it's no longer an inf- a conscience informed by God's word, but it's a conscience informed by the lies of the devil. So it's going to malfunction. Yeah, it's not going to be able to tell you objectively what's right or wrong anymore, um, except maybe maybe with a weak voice um, or with a distorted voice, just depending on how far gone you are. Okay, I'm seeing a couple of hands pop up. the things that I have run into kind of recently is parenting technique where they're telling their children you don't need to ever apologize for anything you just go and get it Um, even our bigger society here is so individualistic that this contorted message and raising your children this way um is actually, I'm seeing it more often, and it's scary because how unhinged those children become. Mm-hmm. Then, I mean, that's what I think is it's getting even for Christian, no matter who you are, to discern what's truth and what isn't is getting so difficult, so complex, you know, um, to find that truth. Mm-hmm. Which is why I guess I'm so glad I'm a member of a church where the truth is constantly presented to me to, to, for where to look. But when you hear this with parents, and this is what they're telling their two-year-olds, you're better than that. You don't have to apologize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, in order to be able to be certain about something, um, we have to be able to go to that which is truly objective and outside of ourselves. I'm subjective, my heart's deceitful, I can twist and turn all manner of things. But the scriptures are an objective uh, truth and norm, and I can grasp hold of those that externally and then see where my own heart and mind are distorted. And um, the word of God informs my conscience. And then the role of parents is largely a role of forming conscience in their children. And of course that has, you know, this used to be more broadly understood even within society, within civilization, as this is just part of, like, I mean, it's you can even see it written into some of our laws and some of the principles uh, regarding, well, for example, military service or something like that, where 
um, conscience is respected. You could be a conscientious objector, that kind of thing. Um, this idea of conscience was understood to just be integral to what it is to be a human being, and thus also integral to what it means to have a collection of human beings called a society and a civilization. So what we're seeing is not only the, the breakdown of, of each person individually, where they're just simply turned into pleasure-seeking missiles, <laughs> um, but we're seeing then the whole breakdown of society, where it's just every man for himself, um, and nobody even stops to think, is this good for my family? Is this good for my neighbor? Is this good for my country? Um, and so, yeah, this is uh, this is kind of the implosion of our culture. Now, if we're going to fight back against that as Christians, it actually really doesn't begin, you know, with like machine guns strapped all around you and, you know, charging into some fictitious, glorious battle. It starts like humbly at your dining room table. <laughs> Start to inform the consciences of your children, of your grandchildren. It goes it goes from these small and despised means and methods and modes um, and it builds up and blossoms up from there. And that's kind of where we're at. We're realizing that there's a, a breach in our culture such that um, Christianity is increasingly no longer welcome. We can analyze why that is. We can get upset about that. But at a certain point, we have to just go, okay, well, how are we going to deal with this? And the answer is to reestablish ourselves in the truth of God's Word, to have our consciences formed by His Word, not by the, not by the world and to start building one child at a time, one individual at a time, around the dining room table, where it's rejected, it's rejected. That's What does that have to do with us? Um, but where we can push that forward, that's how, if, if change is ever going to occur, that's how change is going to occur. But even, even if it doesn't on some larger corporate scale, at least it will for those individuals gathered around. So, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. I am, you know... By the way, it's tangential. I mean, um, one, so I don't mean to be contrarian here in any way because I totally agree with your sentiment. But of course, one thing that we're seeing amongst uh, the extremities, it's particularly of the left that control the media, is if you infringe upon one of their, you know, sin and one of their commandments and commit a sin in their eyes, you're supposed to apologize and make this big kind of public show of shame over what you've done. What's going on there, though? And why should we re resist ever apologizing? Because they're accusing us of a sin that is different than God's definition of a sin. They're judging by a different set of axioms and principles than God's axioms and principles. A different morality, which is in fact a false morality. So if you, so if someone in the media accuses you of a, or some celebrity of a, of one of their false, fictitious, made-up sins, you should absolutely not apologize. Um, that's only furthering them and their delusion. You say it wasn't sinful at all what I did, um, and my conscience is utterly free from any quote-unquote guilt or shame that you would try to heap upon me socially. Um, my conscience is too well informed by the Word of God to be distorted and disinformed by you and popular opinion. So that's part of what we need to teach our children too growing up is, okay, in the, with your conscience rightly informed, you're quick to apologize where you've violated God's will. But where you've merely violated man's will, and that's contrary to God's will, your conscience is so well informed you don't recognize that as a sin. You recognize this as a kangaroo court, and you treat it accordingly, right? So this is, this is um, you know, this is, 
It's always the battlefront in Christianity. The true battlefront in Christianity is small and humble. It's in the houses. It's in the small churches. It's in the hearts and minds of individual people. That's where the real battleground is. So we're on the front lines. We're blessed to do that. Those of you who are in the position of grandparents, you're blessed to do that with your still children and with your grandchildren. Um, But you're also blessed to do that in any number of other ways as you volunteer and interact with the community and your larger families. Please. I think uh, one of the roots of the problem, uh, at least in the re- in our recent history, is a term that the French gave us. I, I think it was Rousseau. We'd have to check with our philosophers, and that is positive law. Uh, positive law was anything that broke from the Ten Commandments. In other words, our morality was based on the Ten Commandments. Should be based on the Ten Commandments, and. Uh, Positive law is something, for example, with abortion, um, totally violates the Ten Commandments. Yet, positive law, somehow you're able to uh, lift that out and separate it so that now this is a good thing and a proper thing to do if, if, the, uh, if it occurs in your life and you shouldn't feel guilty for it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think if you could comment on that. Well, briefly, it's a very complicated topic, but yeah, positive law goes above and beyond what the natural law is, and the rub for Christians is that's not always to be rejected, necessarily. Um, I think this is, again, this is where it gets really lengthy, but something like the Magdeburg Confession, and you can find, if you Google search, like, issues, etc., Magdeburg, or issues, etc., Lutheran resistance, something like that. Uh, you'll find a professor by the last name McPherson, um, and you might run into another uh, professor, um, one from our synod, uh, last name Kuntz, and they're doing some really good work on this. But um, what you see, what you see is that it's nuanced. Christians can put up with a certain amount of legislation that goes above and beyond natural law, and we should. But what should we do when that starts becoming? Um, manipulative, toxic, leveraged against the church, or it starts to get leveraged against the Ten Commandments, or as you brought up in the case of abortion or something like that, um, leveraged against the natural law, um, then what is our duty and what is our response as Christians, yeah, um, civilly speaking, in the, in the, right, in the left-hand kingdom, the civil sphere? So maybe that's all the better I can do right now is just kind of bring up those, those dynamics. Uh, I'm reminded of the book of Judges when there was about 400, 450 years of open disobedience by the Israelite people, and the book ends with the the term uh, or the verse that says, people did what was right in their own eyes. And fast forward to today, uh, there's an expression in the public marketplace among lots of people that says, "Uh, do what you want and ask for forgiveness later. Uh, Could you, I mean, is this a dull conscience? And uh, part two to that is just a comment that in my own personal life, when I'm convicted by my conscience I've done something wrong, and then as time rolls on, I find it gets less and less... You know, it's like like time works to dull mm-hmm. that sin. Mm. Uh, it, is my conscience sharp enough? I mean, what what should I be doing 
in that. That's like a twofold comment, I guess, or question. Um, okay, so maybe I'll take the latter and then ask you to clarify the former. But yeah, the latter question: time has a dulling effect, but it's psychological. It's not. A, it's not actually at the core. And how we know that is because, in an instant, that scab gets ripped off, and you re the healing you thought was there wasn't in fact there. C.S. Lewis brings this out that time is no savior, and. Um, how easy and acutely it will, how easy it will be, and, and how acutely he will do so when the Lord reveals to us the judgment of our entire lives. What do you mean when I was fourteen? <laughs> yeah, oh, well, there you are, as if you're fourteen and you're seeing what you've done, you know, and very acute. And so there's an illusion that takes place. This is the deadening of our flesh, and this illusion, the psychological uh, time heals it, when in fact it doesn't. It just kind of barely scabs over, but it's not a healing. It's not an, a true healing at all. So, um, this is where, you know, and, and God can, God can rip that scab off, so to speak, at any given time. It's part of this, this part of the passive component of repentance that we talked about in those earlier chapters where nobody wakes up and plans to have a crisis about their past. Um, and yet here it is. And God has brought to mind all kinds of heinous things that you've forgotten. Um, and, uh, and it's just, you're, you're devastated. And that's where we as Christians, you know, you accept the accusation as true because it is. And you confess it to God and you, um, ask for his forgiveness. If it's, if it's extremely acute, this is why God gives us the gift of pastors and, and individual confession where you go and say, Hey, I thought I was done with these things, but here they are again. Will you pronounce absolution so that my conscience can be set free by the power of God's word? And that, that's a, exactly what that's designed for, that form of absolution. Um, but otherwise, as we wrestle on a daily basis, yeah, you, you remember that you're baptized. You remember that Christ died for the sins of the whole world of which you're a part, and you cling to that forgiveness more than you cling to the condemnation. Because remember, uh, for, in First John, um, he deals with this. Uh, even if your own heart condemns you, there is one who is greater than your heart. Yeah. So what? And and here, um, maybe we'll talk about this in more depth next week. But as I mentioned, it's not that God is constantly changing. It's not that God is like, well, I'm angry with you. Well, I'm happy with you. Well, I'm kind of angry with you. You know, um, it's it's much more accurate to think of us as changing. And the conscience is changing. And the conscience is constantly in flux. And sometimes any little thing can tip it off. I mean, it's been, I think it's been years since I've been on Facebook, but you know, if you go on Facebook and you go back and there's a face and there's a memory and your conscience is defiled, you know, what do you do? <laughs> it's, it's our conscience that's continually in flux and changing. And, um, and that's where, that's where, you know, Praying the Lord's Prayer and especially the, that petition, forgive us our sins, is a daily part of Christian life. And it's a daily wrestle. We plead to God for His forgiveness, but then we console ourselves with His promises and we let those promises of God have the last word. Because again, even if your heart condemns you, there is one who is greater than your heart. And that's part of the humiliation and the right ordering of the conscience as well, as you said, is the conscience need, itself needs to know when to shut up. Because there's one who is greater than our conscience speaking. And that's the living God, right? The conscience is still my conscience. It's still a part of me. It's still that internal voice or feeling pit in my stomach. Um, even if that condemns me, there's one greater than that. So I need to say, conscience, thank you for driving me to Christ. Now be quiet. Christ is speaking. 
and he has just absolved me of all my sins. And so that that's how we fight that fight. When we're in the midst of accusation, this is something that Wolfmiller didn't bring out because he's trying to describe it in very simple terms, but it's something Luther brings out. When we're in the midst of that that spiritual attack, and um, and in the Lutheran tradition, this is known as tentatio, the the attack on the conscience and the attack on belief, um, and uh, where this where this takes place, um, we have to cling to God's word, and we have to let God have the final say in our hearts, in our minds, um, and and. In terms of the accusation of the conscience, when you're undergoing it, it's impossible to dis- like you can't just say, "Be gone from me, Satan," because it's your conscience. Be gone from me, Satan. You're telling me my exact sins, exactly according to where the Ten Commandments. See, Luther's point is, you can't tell the difference between the conscience, the devil, or God, because if the accusation is true, it's true. Now, the devil will sometimes tip his hand by um, by accusing you of too much or accusing you of too little, or by accusing you and leaving you there. So rot. So that you've done X, Y, and Z, so die in your sins. So know that you're outside of God's grace. That's about the only way the devil tips his hat is when he transgresses the bounds. But other than that, you can't tell the difference between your conscience, God, and the devil as the accuser. And so what do you do? Again, you plead guilty of all sins, and you um, throw yourself at, you know, it's like what David does in... in um, in the Psalms, I am yours, save me. And you let God's word be louder than the word of condemnation, even if it's God's word, even if it's the devil's word, even if it's your conscience word. And by the way, that's precisely how then we are cleansed, by that word of promise, by that blood of Christ, coming to the Lord's Supper, receiving the blood of Christ into our mouth. That's what cleanses our conscience. Now, it doesn't rightly inform our conscience. That's actually why we need the law still in our lives, to rightly inform our conscience, where our conscience has been damaged manipulated and distorted by the lies of the world. But the law can't free our conscience, can't cleanse our conscience. Only the blood of Jesus can. That's the Hebrews verse we just read. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience? So the blood of Jesus, that forgiving word of Jesus, that absolution, cleanses our conscience. And in that sense, heals our conscience. But the conscience isn't fully healed until it begins to be informed and restored undamaged from the world. So this is something we need to be sensitive to in our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially if they're adult converts or something, because they're coming from, they're coming from a place where their conscience was completely misinformed and disordered. And they're receiving the forgiveness of sins, but we can't magically expect that conscience to be healed just because of the forgiveness of sins. If that takes time, teaching, instruction, a community, shared values, it transmits to where that conscience begins the process of becoming informed, properly speaking, objectively speaking, and rightly ordered uh, in accordance with God's will and commandments. And so that's where we need to take time with people too. We need to say, hey, just because this person doesn't even recognize right or wrong, doesn't mean, you know, in, in some instance, doesn't mean that we can't absolve them and help them see and correct that part of them in a spirit of gentleness. But this is kind of the, this is, this is why, you know, the pastoral office in specific, but even all of Christianity in general is seen as a healing office because, and a healing role. It's the healing of the conscience, first and foremost. That's the heart and center of a person's, of the inner, of the interface between the soul and God. 
that surface between the soul and God, if you will, if you'll work with my analogy, is the conscience. So to begin healing that is to heal someone in the most intimate possible way, in the most essential, central uh, possible way. All right, well, I know that's a rather deep place to leave off, and undoubtedly you have uh, some questions. That's great. Um, let's pick up with conscience uh, again next week on, on 113, and we'll return to this courtroom motif and get a get an even fuller and more accurate understanding of how this works and, and how God cleanses our conscience with the blood of Jesus. The Lord be with you.